0: Welcome back, everyone. Uh, my name is Safa Abdul-Hakim. I'm the PGY-4 resident at Yale University. We have a special episode today about neurologic care after cardiac arrest by Dr. Rachel Beekman, who's one of our neuro ICU attendings with great interest in cardiac arrest. We also have one of our PGY-4 residents, Gabriela Garcia, who's going into neuro ICU, who will be interviewing Dr. Beekman today because she is very interested and passionate about cardiac arrest, and it will be a wonderful episode that I'm very excited about. Welcome Dr. Beekman and welcome Gabriella. Thank you for being with us here today. Thanks Safa.
1: Dr. Beekman, could you walk us through the impact of cardiac arrest in this country and also the neurologist's crucial role in management post-arrest?
2: Of course, thank you so much for having me. Cardiac arrest is one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality worldwide. The incidence of cardiac arrest in the United States is about 600,000 patients per year. Despite advances in pre-hospital care and hospital management, the prognosis unfortunately remains poor with only 10 to 20% of patients surviving to hospital discharge. The primary determinant of mortality after cardiac arrest is hypoxic ischemic brain injury and withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy due to perceived poor neurologic prognosis. Many question why a neurologist is important in the treatment of cardiac arrest patients, but you should think of cardiac arrest as the largest stroke anyone can have. Cardiac arrest causes global brain ischemia. Neurologists can improve care by identifying and preventing secondary brain injury, identifying patients at risk for brain death, which occurs in up to 10% of cardiac arrest patients, and guiding the medical team and the patient's family in prognostication and shared decision-making, as the vast majority of these patients remain comatose.
1: Awesome, thanks Ah. for that excellent topic introduction. Um, In this episode, we will also cover the role of the neurological assessment immediately post-return of spontaneous circulation, indications to use targeted temperature management, or TTM, how TTM is implemented, the effect of secondary brain injury, and also details on multimodal prognostic assessments. So let's start with a case. This is a 67-year-old man brought to the emergency department after a witness cardiac arrest at home. Family reports uh, he was clutching his chest shortly before becoming unresponsive. And upon arrival to the ED, he's actively getting CPR, an estimated downtime of about 20 minutes. Once they achieve return of spontaneous circulation, neurology residents is paged. So what does his initial assessment by the neuro resident consist of and why is it
2: valuable? At our institution, a chill alert is called once the patient with a cardiac arrest reti- receives return of spontaneous circulation. A chill alert notifies the neurology and cardiology consultants for prompt evaluation, but also informs the ICU charge nurse's bed management that an ICU bed will be needed as soon as possible. Your role in the acute evaluation is to gather critical information that helps to identify the degree of primary brain injury, to evaluate if targeted temperature management is indicated, to evaluate the need and urgency for brain imaging, to facilitate the connection to EEG, to evaluate the patient's hemodynamics, ventilator settings, and labs, all which help you identify brain-centered resuscitation goals. Upon walking into the resuscitation room, you may see that CPR is ongoing, as rearrest is not uncommon. There will be many people in the room, including nursing, emergency department staff, students, pharmacy technicians, social work, and other consultants. In the hallway outside of the resuscitation room, EMS will be present. EMS has invaluable information regarding arrest details. If they are still present, it is critical to talk to them about the time they were called, the time they arrived. If there was bystander CPR, the time CPR was started, and the time of ROSC. They also may have information regarding prodromal symptoms, like clutching of the chest seen in our patient, or worse headache of life, which may point to a neurogenic etiology of arrest. If EMS has already left, they typically leave an ambulance record, and this information gets scanned into the media tab. This information is vital determining the no flow and low flow times, which impact neurologic prognosis. In addition to gathering critical information regarding the arrest, it is important to document an initial examination to determine the eligibility for TTM. It is important to recognize that this exam is limited and non-reactive pupils on the initial assessment may not be indicative of irrecoverable brain injury. The two most important examination features to pay attention to are the GCS motor score and the pupil exam fixed and dilated pupils, but not fixed and small pupils, may indicate the degree of primary brain injury. In patients with fixed and dilated pupils, with a prolonged no flow or low flow time, especially if it's a non-shockable rhythm, you should consider an early head CT to determine the extent of primary brain injury, as this patient may not benefit from targeted temperature management. Patients who can follow commands after cardiac arrest should not be treated with targeted temperature management. Patients who are purposeful, like sitting up in the bed and trying to self-extubate, may improve to an exam where they're following commands in the setting of holding sedation. And these are patients who you may want to reassess when sedation is held to determine their eligibility of TTM. Lastly, the initial six to 12 hours is the most critical period for development of secondary brain injury. Although the heart is restarted, cerebral blood flow is not normal microcirculatory dysfunction and inflammation can result in ongoing ischemia. It is important to assess the hemodynamics, labs, ventilator settings, all to optimize cerebral physiology and minimize secondary brain injury. We'll talk more about this later, but it is important to recognize that patients are often not admitted to the ICU and seen by an attending neurologist until the following day. And it is important to make sure that some of these physiologic parameters are optimized before that time point.
1: You kind of got into part of the neurological exam, but can we delve into more detail about what are important features to keep in mind when doing a neuro exam?
2: Yeah, the clinical examination in cardiac arrest patients is a standard coma exam. Prior to starting the examination, you should assess if the patient is on sedation or if the patient has recently received any neuromuscular blockade. At the beginning of the examination, you should say the patient's name softly, followed by loudly. If there is no response to verbal stimulation, you should try tactile stimulation. First softly and then vigorously with either bilateral trapezius squeeze or sternal rub. You should then ask the patient to do a task such as open your eyes or wiggle your toes. It should be loud and firm. If patients are unable to follow commands, you should see if they can localize the painful stimuli you can start with deep trapezius pressure. Localization means that they can find the painful stimulus. In patients who do not localize, you should proceed with proximal and distal noxious stimuli typically done in the medial arm, medial thigh, and nail bed pressure in the hands and feet. You must assess if the motor response is a withdrawal, flexion, extension, or triple flexion. Next, you should assess the brainstem reflexes. The pupil exam should be done in dark light when, when feasible. And it is important to recognize that with small pupils, pupillometry is more likely to detect reactivity than your naked eye assessment. Corneal reflexes should be done with saline drops, and if no response is identified, you should move on to a cotton swab or direct pressure. It is important to touch the swab to the lateral aspect of the cornea, which is the colored portion of the eye, and not the con- conjunctiva, which is the white portion, portion of the eye. Oculocephalic reflexes should only be tested in patients without injury to the cervical spine. Cough should be assessed with deep suctioning. Prior to the assessment of cough, you should evaluate if a patient is breathing above the rate set on the ventilator. The exam features may be used to determine the Glasgow Coma Scale score, the GCS score, or the full outline of unresponsiveness score, which is the four score. Lastly, it is important to identify myoclonus which may be subtle, such as eyelid movement or chin movement, and may be indicative of status epilepticus. This requires urgent connection to EEG.
1: So the etiology of primary brain injury in cardiac arrest patients is mainly ischemia, secondary to global hypoperfusion. But what can you tell us about secondary brain injury post-arrest?
2: The primary brain injury depends on many factors that unfortunately we can't control once the patient is already seen in the hospital. Secondary brain injury is modifiable and aggressive treatment may yield improved outcomes. Secondary brain injury is caused by an imbalance between cerebral metabolic demands and the energy substrates. There are many causes of secondary brain injury after cardiac arrest, including microcirculatory dysfunction, excitotoxicity, inflammation, cerebral edema, impaired autoregulation, fever, shivering, and seizures, just to name a few. While many of these mechanisms might not be readily identifiable, fever, shivering, and seizures can be easily recognized at the bedside, and aggressive management is important to prevent secondary brain injury.
1: Speaking of preventing secondary brain injury, what ways do we have to to prevent it?
2: It's important to recognize risk factors for secondary brain injury, including things that increase cerebral metabolic demands like seizures, fevers, or shivering. But it's also important to recognize that there's no one-size-fits-all approach in cardiac arrest management. For example, while MAP over 65 is recommended by the guidelines, it's likely insufficient for the vast majority of cardiac arrest patients. Autoregulatory failure or the inability to maintain cerebral blood flow despite changes in blood pressure is common after cardiac arrest and will contribute to a patient's optimal blood pressure goals. There are several basic things that we can do to minimize brain injury, including avoiding hypotension, avoiding hypoglycemia, avoiding hypotonic fluid or large electrolyte shifts like you might see in dialysis or the treatment of DKA, aggressively treating fevers and shivering, avoiding hypocapnia, which causes cerebral vasoconstriction and therefore can worsen ongoing ischemia, and hypoxemia, which decreases the cerebral oxygen supply. It is also important to aggressively treat seizures. While the impact of seizure treatment on outcomes has yet to be elucidated, we do know that seizures and some epileptiform patterns um, can cause a state of cerebral metabolic crisis and other acute brain injury. And for this reason, it might yield ongoing brain injury. The goal of TTM is really to reduce the cerebral metabolic demands and prevent fever inadequate treatment of shivering will increase the cerebral oxygen consumption and counteract the benefit of TTM.
1: You mentioned uh, seizure treatment, possibly improving outcomes. So does this mean we should provide anti-seizure prophylaxis to cardiac arrest patients?
2: There's no role for prophylaxis with anti-seizure medication. However, uh, if you, you know, sites have the ability to connect EEG as soon as possible, then it should be connected And seizures should be treated as up to 30% of patients have non convulsive seizures after cardiac arrest. And aggressive treatment may improve uh, outcomes. That's still an ongoing topic of uh, interest.
1: Let's get into one very crucial component of post cardiac arrest care, which is targeted temperature management or TTM. Can you first explain what TTM is?
2: Induced hypothermia dates back to Hippocrates, who actually observed that infants exposed to the open survived longer in winter than summer. And that, you know, packing patients um, with acute brain injury in the snow improved their survival. Many centuries later, animal studies confirmed the benefits of induced hypothermia and hypoxic ischemic brain injury. The first studies that evaluated therapeutic hypothermia in cardiac arrest patients were in the 1960s. And they found that the patients that were subjected to hypothermia had improved survival. The first randomized trials involving therapeutic hypothermia actually didn't happen until 2002, and that's the Haka and the Bernard study, which both showed significant improvement in functional recovery for the hypothermia group. After the publication of these trials, uh, guidelines began recommending the use of therapeutic hypothermia in cardiac arrest patients, but it took many years to become common practice. In 2013, the TTM trial evaluated cooling to 33 versus 36 with the hypothesis that maybe fever prevention was more important than hypothermia. This trial showed no difference in outcomes and prompted many sites to shift to using 36 degrees. The current guidelines recommend cooling to any temperature between 32 and 36 degrees. Targeted temperature management involves four phases, induction, maintenance, rewarming, and controlled normothermia. So when is TTM recommended? Patients with sustained ROSC, which means that their uh, heartbeat remains 20 minutes after uh, achieving ROSC, and who are unable to follow commands should be treated with targeted temperature management. The most recent guidelines are the AHA guidelines from 2020, which recommends any temperature between 32 and 36 for 24 hours for any cardiac rhythm. But these guidelines will need to be updated to incorporate the recent findings of the largest TTM trial, TTM2. And are there any contraindications to TTM? There are a few absolute contraindications and each patient needs to be evaluated for eligibility. The two most common contraindications to TTM are hemodynamic instability and life-threatening bleeding. It is important to recognize that your initial evaluation is just a snapshot in time. For example, a patient who's hemodynamically unstable with a rapidly escalating pressure requirement, but due to respiratory acidosis may be more stable after adjustment of ventilator settings. A patient with hemorrhagic shock due to anticoagulation may become more stable after transfusion and reversal of coagulopathy. A patient with renal failure who is not a candidate for dialysis, however, is unlikely to improve their hemodynamics rapidly. Pregnant patients are excluded from TTM as the effects on the fetus are unknown. And patients with premorbid dependency or a life expectancy less than six months are unlikely to benefit from TTM and should be excluded.
1: Do we need brain imaging before initiating TTM? And for example, for our case, would you recommend brain imaging?
2: Early head CT can be particularly helpful in patients with a prolonged unwitnessed or a non-shockable rhythm arrest with brainstem areflexia. To identify devastating injury that may not benefit from targeted temperature management. Head CT may also be indicated in patients where there is either concern for trauma or a neurologic prodrome. But it is important to recognize that in the United States, a neurogenic etiology of arrest is extremely rare, less than 5%, and that earlier initiation of TTM likely drives the improvement in outcomes. And for this reason, head CT should not delay the initiation of TTM. In the case you presented, it's a witness cardiac arrest with clear preceding chest pain. And for this reason, there's no specific benefit to an early head CT in this uh, in this patient.
1: I know each institution's TTM guidelines differ slightly, but could you walk us through how TTM is generally implemented?
2: Yeah, so I was mentioning before, there's four phases of TTM. The first phase is induction. Our hospital algorithm uses an initial core temperature to guide the target temperature. For patients who present with a core temperature of 36 or higher, they're cooled to 36. For patients whose core temperature is anywhere between 33 and 36, they're kept at their core temperature. For patients who present with a core temperature below 33, they are slowly rewarmed, no greater than 0.25 degrees Celsius per hour to a goal of 33 degrees. It is crucial to start the induction phase with connection to a definitive device. So whether that's Arctic Sun or IDTM, as soon as possible. There is likely minimal benefit of starting TTM beyond six hours after cardiac arrest. Phase two is maintenance, and once the target temperature is reached, this should be maintained for 24 hours. Phase three is rewarming, which should occur at, on a standard patient at 0.25 degrees Celsius per hour. We sometimes recommend slowing the rewarming to 0.1 degrees Celsius per hour in special circumstances, such as hemodynamic instability or a concern for cerebral edema. And lastly, phase four is controlled normothermia. The patient should be maintained at a temperature of less than 37.5 for about two days, ranging anywhere from 33 to 44 hours, depending on the timing of rewarming for a total TTM duration of 72 hours.
1: You mentioned earlier the publication of the TTM2 trial and how that might change guidelines, but briefly, they essentially showed that targeted hypothermia after cardiac arrest did not seem to confer survival benefits when compared to normothermia. So given the, this new trial, does this mean that we should no longer induce hypothermia in cardiac arrest patients?
2: This is a great question and a question that many are asking around the country. The TTM2 trial evaluated TTM to 33 degrees versus controlled normothermia in cardiac arrest patients with a cardiac etiology. It is a very well done study and the largest TTM trial to date. While the results of the TTM2 trial are valid for the population studied, it is important to recognize the differences between the population we see and those who are enrolled in TTM2. In the TTM2 trial, 91% had a witness cardiac arrest, 82% had bystander CPR and 72% had a shockable rhythm. This vastly differs from the patients we see at our hospital, which 65% have a witness arrest, 40% have bystander CPR, and less than 30% have a shockable rhythm. The overall survival in the TTM2 trial was 50%, and 42% had good neurologic outcomes. Compare this to the survival rate we see of 25%, and a good neurologic outcome rate of only 8%. The TTM-2 trial showed that controlled normothermia was equivalent to cooling in a population with overall a lower risk of severe hypoxic ischemic brain injury. This study is not generalizable to all cardiac arrest patients, specifically in the US where bystander CPR rates are significantly lower. It's important also to recognize that the pragmatic design of this study resulted in target temperatures being achieved six to eight hours after return of spontaneous circulation. We know from animal models that the benefit of ttm is reduced as time elapses, and that it is possible that ultra-early cooling, like being done in the cap trial, which is specifically achieving a target temperature less than 34 within four hours from the 911 call, may show different results. Lastly, the controlled normothermia group was maintained with temperatures below 37.8, and almost 40% of those in the controlled normothermia group actually needed definitive cooling devices such as Arctic Sun or IBTM to achieve this goal. It is important to recognize that controlled normothermia requires the use of a cooling device in the vast majority of patients, and it does not mean that patients do not get treated at all. The most important point from this trial is that individualization matters. A target temperature somewhere between 33 and 37.8 degrees is probably appropriate. We know from other studies that the Pittsburgh cardiac arrest category score, which grades patients based on the initial degree of neurologic injury and cardiopulmonary failure, may help to identify which patients benefit from moderate hypothermia to more closer to a normothermia. We also know from other studies that initial lactate over 12 may suggest benefit from 33 degrees. Going forward, it's really important to identify biomarkers that help target uh, the goal temperature in each individual patient.
1: Let's pivot a little bit here and talk about Next steps uh, that the neurologist might be involved in after uh, targeted temperature management and after cardiac arrest. A really common question that we get is now that my loved one has had a cardiac arrest, will they be neurologically different if they make it through this critical stage and stabilize? So, in other words, we're asked to neuroprognosticate. What can you tell us about the types of deficits experienced by cardiac arrest survivors?
2: Yeah, more than half of cardiac arrest survivors are going to have some measurable neurocognitive dysfunction. And somewhere between 20 to 50% will have persistent deficits in memory, learning, or executive function, even after three months. Unfortunately, the majority of the tools that we have to predict neurologic outcome fail to predict functional outcomes that are relevant to patients and their families. We often, in research studies, define good outcome by the cerebral Pittsburgh category score. And this defines patients with good outcomes as those who have mild neurologic or psychological deficits. And patients who are able to work in a sheltered environment with moderate cerebral disability.
1: You mentioned that we have some tools that we can use to neuroprognosticate. Can you elaborate
2: on these? The most common tools used for prognostication after cardiac arrest are the clinical examination, EEG, CAT scan of the head, MRI of the brain, somatosensory evoked potentials, and biomarkers such as neuron-specific enolase. The neurologic examination is performed daily and the examination 72 hours after normothermia, discontinuation of all sedation and confounding variables is the exam that's used in the prognostic assessment. On neurologic examination, absence of pupillary light reflux and corneal reflux is the most specific for poor outcomes. EEG should be connected as soon as feasible and should, be re- should remain on through the completion of TTM. The EEG backgrounds, the presence or absence of reactivity and the presence or absence of epileptiform discharges and seizures is helpful for determining neurologic prognosis. Early EEG patterns, days 1 through 3, are more helpful for prognostication than later findings. Neuron-specific enolase is a biomarker of neuronal injury. While false positives are seen in the setting of hemolysis, renal, and liver failure, a rise in neuron-specific enolase over the first three days is a predictor of poor outcomes. Brain imaging, including head CT and MRI, are very helpful tools, but it is important to recognize that these tools are very subjective. Somatosensory evoked potentials assess the integrity of the thalamocortical circuit, and bilateral absence of the N20 potential is very specific for poor outcomes.
1: What are some of the challenges and pitfalls of neuroprognostication that we should all be aware of?
2: It's very important to recognize that withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy occurs in approximately 60% of cardiac arrest patients. Our prognostic tools are heavily subject to self-fulfilling prophecy bias. Delayed awakening is common, and risk factors include advanced age, renal insufficiency shock liver, status epilepticus, and the use of long-acting sedatives. When determining a patient's prognosis, it is important to use multimodal prognostication. And by that, I mean incorporating your findings from multiple assessments. When the studies do not align, it is important to recognize the limitations of our assessments and express some level of prognostic uncertainty to the family.
1: So let's go back to the case I presented um, at the start. Let's say that on day five, he had intact pupil and corneal reflexes. Um, but no motor response, and his EEG showed myoclonic status epilepticus, which required four antiseizure medications and the use of a versa drip for two days. His MRI showed mild diffusion restriction in the cortex. His N20 on SSEP were present bilaterally. His NSE was sixty on day one, but dropped to twenty five by day three. So taking all of this into consideration, how would you go about determining his prognosis?
2: So this is a great example with mixed prognostic features. Although myoclonic status epilepticus is notoriously associated with poor prognosis, there are actually two different variants with dissimilar prognostic significance. Myoclonic status epilepticus with a burst suppression pattern has a high specificity for poor outcome. While continuous backgrounds with central predominant spike wave discharges can be associated with a good prognosis in up to 50% of cases. In this case, given some of the mixed features, I would recommend continuing aggressive care for up to two weeks and being honest with the family about the level of prognostic uncertainty.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this topic, Dr. Beekman. Um, And thanks to Safa and Dr. Moeller for having us on.
2: Thank you so much.
0: What a wonderful episode. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. This was uh, exceptionally informative for me and I hope it was helpful for our listeners. Thank you for your time today. Bye everyone.